The Social Security Administration says it overpaid about two million beneficiaries over the past two years. The agency's top leader says that's a small fraction of its overall payments. But SSA says part of the problem is that the agency has its smallest workforce in decades. Meanwhile, it's providing benefits for a record number of Americans each year. Federal News Network's Jory Heckman has more for us. Jory, how are we today? Hey, Eric. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So for context, how do these overpayments fit in overall with how much SSA pays in benefits every year? Yeah, some important context here, Eric. SSA says that these overpayments, these two million overpayments over two years, that they are a small fraction of what the agency pays out overall. They have been paying out benefits these days to a record 71 million Americans. And the overpayments account for about half of 1% for Social Security payments and about 8% of supplemental security income payments for those individuals who are getting SSA payments uh, through the disability side of the agency. And so we heard from acting SSA Commissioner Kalolo Kijikazi. She told members of the House Ways and Means Committee that this, again, is just a small fraction of what SSA is paying out and that these overpayments, while unfortunate, are a drop in the bucket, so to speak. SSA's employees work assiduously to pay the right person the right amount at the right time. And as a result, we have achieved low overpayment rates. And that is Acting SSA Commissioner Kalolo Kijikazi. All right. So what is SSA going to do to recoup those overpayments? Are they going to start sending notices out to folks who got too much money? Yeah, well, unfortunately for them, that is the case. SSA has begun mailing out these notices to these beneficiaries that SSA believes have been overpaid. And in that mailing, they are requesting a full and immediate refund. And to recoup these funds, SSA is telling beneficiaries that it's proposing withholding a percentage of future benefit payments uh, until they have settled that overpayment. Now, of course, beneficiaries have the option to appeal that decision if they think that, in fact, they have not been overpaid or to propose a different rate of withholding from what SSA has proposed. And Kijikazi recognizes that this may put some beneficiaries in a bind, uh, that they may not have the means to immediately pay those overpayments back. But she says that SSA is required by law to try and recover these overpayments. I understand that receiving an overpayment notice can be distressing for beneficiaries. We seek to balance compassion with our statutory obligation to seek recovery and carefully review Social Security trust funds. And she can say that again. We're speaking with Federal News Network's Jory Heckman. All right. So what is the state of the SSA workforce? Uh, If they have that small workforce, how is that factoring into their effort to recoup some of these payments? It definitely factors into things. Kijikazi told lawmakers that this staffing shortage absolutely contributes to these overpayments that we're talking about, given the record number of beneficiaries that SSA now serves. SSA has tried to do something about this staffing shortage. SSA last year hired about 7,800 employees, but once you factor in retirements and people leaving the agency, the agency only really felt a headcount growth of 3,200 employees. So overall, SSA has a workforce of about nearly 60,000 employees overall, but 
Despite those best efforts here, the agency now has to put a hiring freeze on additional hires in overtime as it's now in fiscal 2024 and it's under a continuing resolution. So uh, it doesn't quite know what its budget resources are going to be long term. And so they've had to put that pause on workforce growth for the short term. And here's Kijikazi on that. Given attrition over the course of the year, if we have level funding, we will have a hiring freeze, which means we cannot replace the people who leave. And so we will begin that decline in our staffing once again. All right. So what about that funding for the agency in fiscal 2024? Is it going to remain flat or are they going to be operating on a percentage like a lot of agencies have to in a CR? Well, it remains a little uncertain at this point because the House and the Senate remain pretty far apart on what uh, overall spending deal for the rest of this fiscal year would look like. The Senate has, by and large, agreed to the debt ceiling negotiations from earlier this year, which would kind of feel like a CR for the rest of the fiscal year and would cap non-defense discretionary spending, of which SSA would be part of that. But the House lawmakers, they've considered cuts to SSA funding as severe as 30%. Kijikazi says neither of those are great options. They want budget growth, not a flat budget. But she did tell lawmakers that a 30% cut, something of that magnitude, would force the agency to make some pretty tough choices. But if we receive a cut of that magnitude, what would happen is that many of the offices in your districts would have to close. We would not have the staff to be able to operate those offices or the funds available to pay for the rent for those offices. And that is SSA Acting Commissioner Kalolo Kijikazi. All right. So what more could SSA be doing to stop these improper payments? Because this can't be a fun process for them either. No, no. And it's obviously a situation where it's tough for SSA to walk up to Congress hat in hand and ask for more money when it is dealing with this kind of problem of this scale. Of course, there are some self-help things that SSA can be doing on its own here. Congress about eight years ago gave SSA new authority to enter into information exchanges with payroll data providers, uh, because at this point, SSA, on the disability side of things for its benefits there, it relies on beneficiaries to self-report their earnings, and there's a certain income threshold for individuals with disabilities to receive SSI payments and other payments of that nature. At this point, SSA has not made use of that authority. It's not in place. It's not in a place where it can get that data from third-party providers to make sure that the payments that they're issuing, they're going to people who are eligible. Kijikazi says that there is some work in progress there, that SSA is finalizing a notice of proposed rulemaking, and that should be done by the end of this calendar year. So optimistically, what we could see is early next year in calendar year 2024, SSA begin to put this authority to good use. There's a lot of uncertainty in Congress right now, but any update on how much longer this will fall on Kijikazi and if former Maryland governor and presidential candidate Martin O'Malley will be confirmed anytime soon? That's a great question, Eric. It's at this point pretty unclear because we have yet to see O'Malley receive a confirmation hearing. He is, in fact, President Joe Biden's uh, pick to permanently lead SSA. Uh, Kijikazi has been holding down the fort for some time now. So really uncertain whether we'll see that permanent leadership uh, step in anytime soon. 
He's got his work cut out for him. Federal News Network's Jory Heckman, thank you so much for, as always. Thanks, Eric. And you can find more of Jory's reporting on this and other topics at federalnewsnetwork.com. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Comstetter, Chief People Officer at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you. Great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is, and, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture? Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people. And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected and also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the the behaviors that we allow and we, uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences And that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Excellent. We're we're going through a a culture project at our work. Oh, great. It's it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down. So I'm I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Great. Throughout your career, you've piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance, And I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking, that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. 
We are now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies. And we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're going to go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first-time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply, that's not really human-centered. The human-centered is what do they need when they need it? And building modules or, or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user, as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their, in their roles. Excellent. New thinking. Um, this is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when, as a leader, that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on, on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency and I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions, and that leader then said, okay, I'm going to go around the room and get everybody's opinion, and then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there, taking notes on the meeting, and said, go ahead, and I want to hear from you. And I realized, in hindsight... I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way, and I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that, I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision, and it didn't go as I had hoped, and I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted, that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen, especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. 
And so that was a mistake I made. And I realized in my own sense, I wasn't listening to very different opinions. And I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting, getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. And even your title, chief people officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus? Isn't that a great title? I just love the title chief people officer, and I think it's my dream job, really, to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency, so we're really still creating who we're going to become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful. So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with a intentional focus on culture because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth and um, engagement programs and listening programs, that's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. Um, I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would, in, would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how, how are things going, um, because I, we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one-size-fits-all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has 
been a very inspiring leader to me all my life. And I think because first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career. And that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership, that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to you have to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married, for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, and I've had a great career in public service. So, I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, find my own confidence and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank you. Uh, having known you now for seven or eight years yeah. um, and worked alongside you, uh, your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues, it's... Uh, It's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.